I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. This is the smaller books of John toward the back of your Bible. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. First John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, where John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now by this, we may be sure that we know Him, if we obey His commandments. Whoever says, I have come to know Him, but does not keep or obey His commandments, is a liar. And in such a person, the truth does not exist. But whoever obeys His word, truly, in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. By this, we may be sure that we are in Him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word and for the privilege of studying it together. And now as I stand before these, your people, this, your church, I pray that this would be your message and not my own. Through the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Over the last couple of weeks or so, we've been walking through a series about being called to be different. How God calls us to be set apart, to be different from the rest of the world. That's challenging though. We have to admit it's difficult. We spend most of our lives trying to fit in. We want to belong. We want to be a part of something. And, and so we strive from the time we're children, through youth, even into adulthood, even throughout adulthood. We just want to belong. We just want to fit. And then we come to church to hear, well, actually, you're called to be different. You're called not to fit. Oh, that's, it, it becomes quite a, a perplexing thing for us individually as well as with the church. I think the church has struggled with this over the years. As I've, I shared a couple weeks ago, I, I think the church has fallen into the temptation of trying to be so appealing to the world that we no longer make an appeal to the world on behalf of Jesus Christ. And, and it becomes quite a challenge for all of us. And, and then when we read the scripture as well that we're called to be perfect, well, there goes a word. And that, that's a challenging one to think of. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, I'm done. I, I can't be perfect. There's just absolutely no way. that We have to figure out, well, what, what did Jesus mean there when John Wesley would speak about Christian perfection? One of the things that the way he put it was that, that Christian perfection is being habitually filled with the love of God and neighbor. And don't forget habitually filled it's part of who we are habitually filled with the love of god and neighbor to have the mind of christ philippians 2 verse 5 the scripture we looked at last sunday and uh, 
to walk as Jesus walked. 1 John 2, verse 6. To have the mind of Christ, to walk as Jesus walked. John, who's writing this letter, is writing to the church. And and he's trying to make sure that the church understands its place in the world. And this was early on after Jesus' ministry. but, But one of the things that John is trying to make sure that we understand is that our faith and our lives have to be interconnected. They have to go hand in hand. You, you can't disconnect them. So he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But good news. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Oh, that word advocate. I love that word. As a matter of fact, it's the same word that that Jesus shared with the disciples as he was preparing to ascend into heaven. And he said to the disciples, I'm going to send to you an advocate. And, And so this is the one who's going to stand for you. And here in John, we're told Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is going to be the one who will, he's going to stand with us. He will have our back. He will plead our case. He will be there for us, thick or thin, whatever you have going on, You have an advocate. Jesus the Christ, the righteous. I was reading a book recently called The Sun Does Shine. Some of you may have have read this book. One of our church members, Sanjeev Lakia, actually sent it to me right after Christmas or around the Christmas time, and and, and it meant something to him, and so he sent me a copy of it to read as well. It's a powerful book by a man named Anthony Ray Hinton. And Ray Hinton, he was, he was a guy who was a young man in Alabama who was falsely convicted of armed robbery and murder. Not only was he falsely convicted, he was then sentenced to death. He was placed on death row, and for 30 years, he spent his life in prison on death row for a crime he didn't commit. And when you read the book and you start hearing about it, you go, how could that happen? Well, he had two things against him. One was poverty. The other was prejudice. And you put those two together, that is hard to overcome. And so that, you know, people, he didn't have the ability, didn't have the the money to be able to put a a true defense out there. His attorney would come to him and go, we need a ballistics expert. That's $10,000. We don't have $10,000. And and the court appointed attorney just kind of made it very clear that he didn't really want to be on the case because he told him, you know, I spend more on breakfast than what they're paying me to defend you. Well, that makes you feel like, oh, we got a chance then. And, and so as I was reading this book and going through it, it was like, you know, I just, I, I just wanted to cry out, somebody help this guy. Somebody stand up for the, you know, even somebody who's guilty deserves somebody that will at least try to, to give them a fair trial. And, and it was just kind of hard to put it down because I was thinking, you know, our, our daughter is 29 years old. This guy was in prison on death row for a crime he didn't commit for 30 years. And I was thinking that means all those years of, of, of the young preschool life and the, all the elementary days and all the middle school days and the high school days and high school graduation days and college days and wedding days, all those, all those time, all that significant time, 
This man was on death row for a crime he didn't commit. He needed an advocate. He had an ironclad alibi where he was working. He, you had a security guard that checked you in, and, and so he signed in that he was there. And when he was done, he signed out that he, that he left from his work, and there were witnesses that were there that, that knew that he was on site, but it just didn't seem to matter. It just didn't seem to matter. Until finally, an attorney by the name of Brian Stevenson took his case told him not to worry about resources, but would defend him. And they appealed and appealed and appealed and appealed. And finally, they, they reached a bargain that said, you know, you, you can plead guilty and, and, and what we'll do and settle this and, and what we'll do is we'll just give you life without parole. And he said, no, I'd rather die an innocent man than to live in prison as one. And, and so it was appealed all the way to the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court unanimously. And that just doesn't happen in our world very much anymore where something's unanimous. But unanimously agreed that his, his counsel or his attorney had not given him a true defense, that, that the evidence used against him was not properly handled, and and the things were done improperly, and that throughout the whole court case and throughout the appeals processes, he had not been treated fairly. And, and so the United States Supreme Court unanimously stated that he was to have a whole new trial. And the problem was, is when the state looked at the evidence and realized his innocence, all the charges were dropped. After 30 years. He's only been out for a couple years, and he goes around now and he shares his mother was a person of amazing faith who taught him about faith and that God would always be there for you. And he said, they may take my freedom, they may take my life, but they cannot take my joy and they cannot take my faith. And he has an amazing story that you can read and hear about today. And when I was reading then and hearing the Scripture for today that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, I thought, well, thank God I've got an advocate. Thank God I've got somebody who will defend me. And the difference is, I am guilty. I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And, and the good news is that my advocate, the one who will have my back, plead my case, stand for me, and never abandon me, is Jesus Christ Himself. And then John goes on to say that in verse 2, and He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So what's amazing for us is not only do we have an advocate sitting beside of us when we're being accused, but our advocate who stands with us and defends us is also the one who's willing to pay the price for us. Leviticus chapter 16, you hear about the Day of Atonement where on that high holy day, the high priest, and only the high priest, and only on that one day out of the year, could go around behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And we're told that Jesus is our great high priest. And Jesus is the one who is the one who brings atonement, the atoning sacrifice for us. If that word day of atonement in the Hebrew, which the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, is Yom Kippur. The day of atonement, that high holy day when 
when God became our advocate for us. So then John says, so that's our faith. We have an advocate who's with us, and when we were found guilty, who became the atoning sacrifice. But what about our lives? Verse 3. Now by this, we may be sure that we know Him if we obey His commandments. Whoever says, I have come to know Him, but does not obey His commandments, is a liar, and in such a person the truth does not exist. But whoever obeys His word, truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. By this we may be sure that we are in Him. Whoever says, I abide in Him, ought to walk just as He walked. In these short passages of scriptures, what John has done is, is he's told us that our faith and our lives have to be hand in hand. That, that we can't get together on, on one day and ha have theology, but our ethics be totally different. Our theology and our ethics, they go hand in hand. You can't separate them. That our orthodoxy, our right belief, our right faith, has to be attached to orthopraxy, our right living, our right being. In other words, you can't separate the two. There is a Latin phrase that I will probably butcher here, so I'll go ahead and confess that to you up front so that that will minimize the emails. But it goes something like this. Essay quam ridere. Essay quam ridere. You may have heard about it before. It's actually the state motto for the state of North Carolina. It's your motto. If you went to Appalachian State University, it was your motto. If you went to the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, it was your motto. If you went to Montreat, it's also yours. There's plenty. If you look at the list of, of all the places that use it, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And I think it's biblical as too. You know what it means? It means to be rather than to seem. To be rather than to seem. And that's what John is calling for us as Christians is to be Christians. Not just to seem like one. To be disciples. Not just to seem like disciples. To be the church. Not just to seem like the church. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be different. Being a Christian, it's who I am. It's who we are. It's our identity. It's our essence. It's our being. It's not something that we just do. Sometimes when I was growing up, I, I would hear people refer to, they're a Sunday morning Christian. There's no such thing. You can't be a Sunday morning Christian and be something different on Monday. If you're different on Monday, you probably were the same on Sunday. To be, rather than to seem. So, what is the sign that we're Christian? Well, John says, if you keep the commandments, that's the way you'll know. Go, Great. I mean, it was sounding so good again. And then we get to that, keep the commandments. There are only 613 of them. How in the world am I going to keep all 613 commandments? 365 things that I shall not do and 248 things that I better be doing. 
And how in the world am I going to do that? And Now, I've shared with you before, I love the Andy Griffith show, and I could just picture Barney Fife running up to me, blowing his little whistle, holding his little ticket tablet out, going, Terry Moore, you just, you just committed a 148. And a 213. And a 521. And he doesn't have enough paper for all the stuff I've committed, I guarantee you. I've got to keep all the commandments. I'm, I'm done. But Jesus said, actually, you can take all those commandments and boil them down to two. All 613 hang on two. They either are talking about loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and your mind, or they're referring to loving your neighbor. So if it's referring to loving God, then that's why you don't take the Lord's name in vain. You only have the one God. You keep the Sabbath holy. There's a lot of commandments that are about loving God. And then loving neighbor. That's why you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, etc., etc. It's because you, you love your neighbor. But it's, it's kind of easy just to. Just remember to. Love God. Love each other. St. Augustine actually cut it down to one. People didn't really like it. He said, just love God. Do whatever you want to do. People thought that sounded terrible until he went, no, I mean, really love God. I mean, really love God. I mean, if you really love God, then do whatever you want to do. Because once you want to do the will of God. So John says, whoever obeys his word, truly in this person the love of God has reached perfection. Not that we are perfect, but the love of God has reached perfection in us. So John concludes with this. He says, by this we may be sure that we are in Him. Whoever says, I abide in Him, ought to walk just as He walked. Sometimes when you read a, a passage of Scripture and you're struggling with it a little bit, then pull a different translation. Like, the English Standard Version, the ESV, puts it this way. It says, By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Or the New International Version that many of you use, this is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Or the message, which is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Scripture, says, this is the only way to be sure we're in God. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life Jesus lived. I mean, it, it, it puts it there in the terms to, to walk as Jesus walked. Jesus had a higher calling. Jesus had a higher standard. With all the temptations to, to bend and, and to be like the world, Jesus had a higher calling. That's why he continually prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It's not about always what we want. It's about what God is desiring. It's a different standard. We're called to be God's people. We're called to be and not just to seem. And, and it's a standard that God has set for us. It's not a standard that, that we have the privilege of voting on. It's, it's actually the standard that God has given to us as the people of God. Our morals are different. Our values are different. We're called to be set apart. A higher calling to help transform 
our world on behalf of Jesus Christ. It's why Peter, when he was brought before the very ones that had crucified Jesus, Peter said, we must obey God rather than any human authority. We're so often caught up in the trap of trying to fit in that, that we no longer make a difference. And the church has so often tried to blend in that, that we no longer have the impact. We're called to be different. Jesus didn't just say he loved us. He demonstrated it and gave his life for us. And as the church, we are not called to simply say, I love God, but then to demonstrate it and live to a different and higher and holy standard that God has set. We're called to be rather than to seem. We're called to walk as Jesus walked. John says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and in action. Will you pray with me? God, as we hear the sirens go by, someone needs help and others are responding. So we pray for your grace. And God, we, your church, we, we want to be different. God, you have called us to be set apart. You reminded us that it wouldn't be easy either. I mean, Jesus made it clear, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to walk with me, then they must deny themselves, take up their cross every day, and walk with me. It, it's not always an easy walk, but, but you call us to be rather than to seem. You call us to be Christian. You call us to be disciples. You call us to be the church. And God, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit and, and help us to make sure our faith and our ethics, our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy, that what we believe and how we live are always intertwined. We can't separate them as hard as we may try. That's just not the way it works. We're called to be. We are called to walk as Jesus walked. So God, we pray you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on all of your church. And God, we pray that you would convict and inspire and empower us to be your people, now and forever, by your grace, all in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. I invite you to join as we sing together 430, O Master, let me walk with thee. Will you stand as we sing?